This is an ABC podcast. Let's get straight into it today, Norman. Okay. It's CoronaCast. I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician journalist Dr Norman Swan. It's Monday, the 28th of February, 2022. And 2021 was the year of the vaccination for adults and teens. And 2022 so far has been the year of the booster and also vaccinating kids, younger kids, aged 5 to 11 years old. And part of the the push and pull with that is that kids don't tend to get as sick, but vaccination is still important, isn't it, Norman? Yep, and it's been a bit slow. And last week, at least as reported, Professor John Skerritt, who runs the TGA, really expressed irritation at people saying who are underplaying the effect on children. He's saying, while it's milder, some children do get very sick. And he's claiming there were at least six deaths in children from COVID-19. So it's not trivial. It's not been huge. And in today's CoronaCast, we thought we'd cover the issue of childhood immunisation. What are the data? What's known? What's not known? And recenter on that. That's right. We've got a special guest to talk us through these things. She's a paediatric infectious disease expert. She's also an expert on vaccination more broadly. She's the director of the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance. It's Professor Christine McCartney. Christine, thanks so much for joining us on CoronaCast. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. So we saw a slowish uptake with adult vaccinations last year, and it kind of seems like a similar trend with younger kids this year. So far, about half of kids aged 5 to 11 have had their first dose, according to COVID Live. What do you make of this relatively slow uptake? Well, I think 50% is still a pretty good number. Certainly the race was on last year for, for adults and, and that was in the context of us meeting the Delta variant. At the moment, we've, we've all been through a bit of a time in the last few months and parents I know have had a lot on their plate. So trying to get kids back to school with the new COVID safe school settings, many will have availed themselves, as we know, of that first dose for five to 11 year olds before going to school. Some still thinking about it. And I think it's important we unpick the reasons for why parents might not yet have made that decision for their child and support them in their decision making. Can we talk a bit about what some of the drivers of hesitancy are? Because I know for myself, I've got kids in that age group and Getting my own vaccine felt like a no-brainer, but there was that moment of pausing when it comes to giving something to your kid, and we made the decision to do that. But I can imagine that for some parents, there's slightly more hesitation there. Yeah, look, I think it's... I'm a bit loath to call it all hesitancy or, or give it sort of a label that is tries to put it into one box. I think parents have had a lot of information, obviously, to deal with. They, Firstly, you know, they've on the one hand, um, had reassuring information that by and large, we know COVID is not anywhere near as severe in children in this age group as it is in adults, particularly in older adults or those with underlying medical conditions. So they've got that that they're thinking about on the one hand and getting this level of comfort in in sending kids back to school. And then they're thinking, well, genuinely, I, I would believe why then are people telling me that I've got to get my child vaccinated before they go back to school? Now, it is a tricky and fine line because, in fact, COVID does remain serious in a small proportion of children. It is hospitalising children, including not just COVID itself, but the late complications of COVID, such as the multi-inflammatory syndrome. And we see COVID hospitalisations and indeed deaths, very rarely, but we do see them at a higher rate than some other vaccine-preventable diseases that we usually offer immunisation for. So, you know, parents have had to grapple with that and perhaps even have 
already experienced Omicron um, infection or at least COVID in their family over the summer. Some may be reasonably delaying because their child has, has recently been infected and we know you'll be you know, protected for a short time after infection, but of course you still are recommended to be vaccinated. So I think we, we should give parents credit where credit's due, but we do need to address challenges around misinformation or concerns around safety that parents may hold to support them in decision-making because, you know, really it is absolutely in their child's best interest, I think, and and every piece of our guidance tells us this, to have their child vaccinated against COVID-19. So let's walk through the, what we know about safety and effectiveness with the Pfizer vaccine, and I think Moderna has been provisionally approved as well. Yeah, that's correct. So let's talk about Pfizer first because, you know, that vaccine was rolled out for children in this 5 to 11-year-old age group from around December last year, 2021, and has has been going now for about six weeks in Australia. And there have been many, many millions of children in this age group now vaccinated with Pfizer. And, of course, it's a third of the dose compared to those who are 12 years and above. But amazing safety data showing that uh, the vaccine is very well tolerated. Our own OzVac safety program here, which has data up on the public um, domain for, for parents and their doctors and nurses to see, shows that kids generally tolerate the vaccine very well, much better than older teens and, and adults. And then importantly, we know from the United States that this very rare condition, which is inflammation of the heart muscle called myocarditis, is extremely uncommon generally, but it's very uncommon in this age group. It's around no more than four cases per million doses in five to 11-year-olds. So that's like one in 250,000 or five MCGs, I think you might equate that to. And of course, it's a treatable and recoverable condition. So safety is paramount in this age group and it's there. And we also know the vaccine's highly effective and efficacious as well. What about Moderna in this age group? I think it's been provisionally approved for six to 11-year-olds. It has. This is brand new information, of course, from from last week. The uh, TAGI recommendations for Moderna use in six to 11-year-olds have just come out. Now, importantly, I'm catch me here saying six to 11-year-olds because there's a bit of a difference. In five-year-olds, it's only Pfizer that's registered for use. For Moderna, they conducted um, a large clinical trial in six to 11-year-olds. They've used half the dose of what is given for 12-year-olds. So it's still out of the same vial. There's no special vial here. It's 0.25 mils or 50 micrograms. That was shown to be as immunogenic, which basically means stimulating the immune system in a similar way to the vaccine did in young adults. And there is preliminary data showing strong protection against COVID-19, including protection against any level of infection, including asymptomatic infection, and a good safety profile as well, although we don't yet have as much post-marketing data, follow-up surveillance data in large populations yet for Moderna in this age group. And what about the six-month to five-year age group? Oh, yeah, great question. So the companies are proceeding with um, this age group. And firstly, for Pfizer, they started off with a two-dose program with a smaller dose in terms of, you know, micrograms than being used in the 5 to 11s. But they 
weren't happy, and this data isn't in the public domain in any detail, they weren't happy that it was sufficiently um, protective, so they've added a third dose. That was due to be reviewed by the FDA around a week or so ago. In the States? In the United States, yeah, correct, um, the, the um, Food and Drug Administration. But we've heard that date's been pushed out now. So taking a little bit longer to get a picture of how Pfizer performed in the clinical trials uh, for the under fives. And similarly for Moderna, for the under sixes, they're still proceeding with their clinical trials. So we will gain more information on um, these trials and and be able to assess them in in hopefully a fairly near time. Because what they found really was that it was safe. It just wasn't really doing much. Again, that's what we believe. But I think you know, I'm I'm always you know loath to go off hearsay on a company announcement on a on a website. I, I really like to see the data, and um, and there were certainly no safety issues from what we understood. I mean, these vaccines have turned out to be very very well tolerated in in children. The challenge really is the dosing changes as we step down in age. It's different for mRNA vaccines when you compare it to regular other vaccines like we use. You know trip diphtheria, tetanus pertussis, or if we're talking about hepatitis B, we really only have two different doses there. But here we're seeing with the mRNA vaccines, more of a kind of threading of the needle and and some what we call dose ranging studies to pick exactly the best amount to give to stimulate the immune system safely with good protection and obviously give that most benefit over, over any, any potential risks. Now, we're still hearing anxiety from parents anecdotally that, you know, they understand actually how the mRNA, well, they understand partly how the mRNA vaccines work, which is sending a genetic message into the cell. And they're saying, well, how do we know it's not changing the genes of our child? I can understand that parents ask that question. The minute you hear genetic code, you know, your, your antenna go up, don't they? But it's just not the case. It's kind of a, it would be completely useless if it wasn't just saying to our immune systems, quickly code for this protein. The protein is made. The protein is, you know, just that spike protein. And then that genetic message just gets gobbled up, discarded by the the body. And there's no way it can integrate into the cells because, of course, it's it's mRNA or it's non-replicative DNA in the case of the viral vector vaccines. It cannot get into our cells. People may not know that there are a number of, um, you know, animal studies as part of the whole development process of the vaccines that show that these vaccines, the genetic code doesn't persist in cells. It just doesn't and cannot occur. But it's such a clever way of making this protein in tiny amounts that then turn on our immune system to give us protection. It's a fabulous technology, not one that we should be scared of. Speaking of amazing new technologies, can we talk a bit about multivalent vaccines? I know that there's a lot of groups around the world looking at trying to make vaccines that will be effective against multiple variants, including ones that haven't emerged yet. And look, I mean, this is where, again, I think if I can just speak to the technology again, how how far we've come. I mean, we treat things, you know, like cancer and many other terrible scourges of human health using this same mRNA technology. So so we really should be embracing this and, and it's been so carefully studied for safety. What the companies are now doing is putting in this code for, say, two different variants. So maybe the, you know, the or, or the original virus, which is the, um, you know, original um, SARS-CoV-2 
code for the spike protein and then the code for the spike protein from this new variant, Omicron. And the reason that they're choosing the original virus is pretty much almost gone now, but it's turned out to be a very effective vaccine, even for things like Alpha and Delta, the subsequent variants. And then, of course, Omicron variant is quite different. So that's why they're choosing this this new and different spike to be encoded for. And if they put in, you know, say half and half of those two amounts, then it's essentially producing two forms of the spike protein instead of one at the same time and getting a broader and hopefully deeper and more protective immune response. The other thing you can do is is put in the code for other proteins, um, for other serious diseases, like, of course, influenza. And the idea that you can mix the code for for influenza and for COVID in together, um, you know, to basically have a two-in-one vaccine for different diseases there is also attractive. Christine, I feel about four times smarter than I did before our conversation. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, no, my pleasure and, and thank you for having me. Professor Christine McCartney is Director of the National Centre for Immunisation Research and Surveillance and she also has positions at the Children's Hospital at Westmead and University of Sydney. We'll see you on Wednesday. See you then.